This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health will come to order. History was made in Zimbabwe last month when Robert Mugabe's nearly four decades long rule over Zimbabwe came to an abrupt end. Initially deposed uh, uh, by the military and placed under house arrest, Mugabe refused to resign. His ZANU-PF party removed Mugabe as its leader and replaced him with Emerson Manangagwa. Now, days later, Mugabe resigned just after Parliament began impeachment proceedings, and Manangagwa was sworn in as Zimbabwe's new president on November 24th. And news of Mugabe's resignation prompted celebrations in the streets of Harare, and even among Zimbabweans living outside the country, all of whom hoped that uh, Zimbabwe's days of living under a strong man were over. Those of us who watch Zimbabwe closely are also hopeful that this marks a turning point for the country that has suffered complete economic devastation under a dictator who stifled dissent and trampled basic uh, human rights. Zimbabwe has a new president, uh, but the critical questions of whether the new government reflects material change from Mugabe's decades of rule and what path uh, Zimbabwe is likely to take under President Manangagwa, these are things still left unsettled. President Manangagwa is not unknown to us. Uh, until his dismissal as first vice president last month, he'd been closely allied with President Mugabe since Mugabe's rise to power. He stands accused of orchestrating a string of massacres in the early 1980s uh, to consolidate Mugabe's power, uh, leaving as many as uh, 20,000 people dead in Matabili land. His cabinet picks uh, have disappointed many who are hoping for a new coalition government. His selections included military leaders who participated in the military takeover and holdovers from the Mugabe regime, but nobody representing the opposition. There's been much speculation on what policy changes Manangagwa might take, given the dire state of uh, Zimbabwe's failing economy and the critical steps needed to repair it. Today, the subcommittee will hear testimony from four distinguished experts on Zimbabwe. Each brings a unique background and a wealth of experience uh, with them. Uh, I thank each of you for your time and sharing your expertise with us. I know that uh, each of you have uh, rearranged your schedules to travel to Washington for this hearing, and uh, on behalf of the committee, I thank you for it. Um, and uh, let me just say, as a personal note, uh, I uh, lived uh, in Zimbabwe for a time in the early 1980s, uh, at a time there was great hope uh, for this new democracy. And that hope faded uh, sometime in the 90s. And uh, it has become a nightmare uh, for so many uh, Zimbabweans uh, living there and their families abroad. Uh, I hope that uh, this marks a turning point. And what this hearing is really about is to find out what policies we should adopt here in the United States Congress to ensure as much as we can uh, to nudge at least uh, Zimbabwe toward a democratic future. So thank you for being here and I'll turn the time over Senator Booker. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Did you say you lived there in the 1950s or? <laughs> 80s. 80s, okay, okay. Um, I wanna thank Chairman Flake uh, uh, for holding this timely hearing. Uh, it's something I'm really grateful for. This is truly a historic time in Zimbabwe and a pivotal moment in the United States bilateral relationship with Zimbabwe. For decades, Congress has played a key role in the U.S.-Zimbabwe bilateral relationship, most notably through the Zimbabwe Democracy and Recovery Act, or ZDERA, 
passed in 2001, which aimed to address persistent human rights violations and governance challenges by prohibiting U.S. support for multilateral and bilateral debt relief and credit for Zimbabwe's government. Much of the world, including the people of Zimbabwe, were optimistic last month after President Mugabe was ousted from power, closing nearly 40 years of authoritarian rule. Uh, it is the hope of many, including myself, with the transition from President Mugabe to President Emerson Unumgagwa has represented a renewed opportunity for democracy, transparency, and accountability for the government, and most importantly, for all the people of Zimbabwe. However, I'm concerned that despite the promises made by President Mungawa the, to rooting out corruption, to having free and fair elections, and to overseeing an inclusive government, there is simply not yet enough proof that this regime will be any different than the one before. We know that President Mungawa has announced a cabinet stacked with former close associates and military officials. In addition to them being involved in past atrocities, many cabinet members also have serious corruption allegations against them. This raises questions about the government's commitment to a new, democratic, renewed path forward in Zimbabwe. And although President Mungagwa promised an inclusive and representative democracy for all Zimbabweans, the opposition remains left out of the government, seeing an ominous sign about the prospect for real change for the country. The new government of Zimbabwe and the international community must address the yet unanswered calls for justice and accountability for the victims of past horrific atrocities reportedly committed by members of the now new government. Perpetrators of the brutal cleansing of political opposition in Matabeleland, a region in the 1980s, in which 20,000 people were killed, still have not been held accountable after all of these years. Thousands of Zimbabweans still live with the physical and psychological wounds of this violence. As we examine the future of Zimbabwe, one benchmark on the horizon is this August's elections. Free, fair, and credible elections that are transparent, free from intimidation, and in which the opposition is allowed to organize, campaign, and safely run their candidates must be the signal the U.S. and the international community needs to lift some of the barriers to bilateral and mutual aid. This benchmark may in, effect, may in fact determine whether Zimbabwe is ready to capitalize on this historic moment. I thank our, thank our witnesses for being here. And again, as uh, Chairman Flake said, you all have uh, uh, crisscrossed the globes, changed travel plans uh, to be here to provide your very thoughtful, insightful testimony. I am grateful uh, for you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Booker. Uh, Senator Coons, would you like to say something? Senator Coons and I traveled to Zimbabwe almost two years ago. Um, thank you, Chairman Flake, uh, Ranking Member Booker. Um, I will never forget our memorable <laughs> uh, afternoon tea uh, with former President Mugabe. Uh, and I think many uh, have waited and wondered when the day would come uh, when Zimbabwe would have new leadership, as the chair and ranking have uh, framed, I think, very well. The question now is, what will the new government of Zimbabwe do? Will they take the steps needed in order to earn the trust of the world community? Uh, can we find ways to support um, movement towards real democracy in a truly open society or not? I'm very eager to hear from uh, our panel of uh, two panels of witnesses today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for a chance to participate in the hearing. 
Thank you. We'll now turn to our, our witnesses. Uh, first panel, we'll hear from Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, Stephanie Sullivan of the State Department's uh, Bureau of African Affairs. Uh, she'll provide the administration's evaluation of recent events and the path forward to our bilateral relations with Zimbabwe. Uh, the second panel, we'll hear from Peter Godwin, uh, Tendai uh, Adiwa um, Mavinkar, and uh, we know that uh, Peter Godwin, obviously an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, has written a series of uh, memoirs about his native Zimbabwe, where he was born and raised. I've particularly enjoyed those, those memoirs. Uh, Tendai Bidi, obviously a former finance minister for Zimbabwe, current opposition leader, and Diwa uh, Mavinkar, an activist with a Human Rights Watch. With that, to recognize Ms. Sullivan. Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to testify today on Zimbabwe. The historic turn of events featuring Robert Mugabe's resignation offers an extraordinary opportunity for Zimbabwe to set itself on a new path. Today, I provide this testimony to discuss our bilateral relationship, the events leading to the transition, and the U.S. position on future engagement. Looking back over the past two decades, the U.S. relationship with the Zimbabwean government has been tense. The government's repeated violations of its citizens' rights, its catastrophic economic mismanagement, and widespread corruption were obstacles, making it difficult to engage effectively to address Zimbabwe's challenges. Deeply flawed elections in 2008 and 2013 further entrenched political divides in the country diverting attention from much-needed reform. Nevertheless, the United States has maintained a strong relationship with the Zimbabwean people. Since Zimbabwe's independence in 1980, we have provided significant development assistance in the areas of health, food security, education, and economic opportunity for citizens. Today, our assistance builds resilience by helping millions of Zimbabwe's people battle HIV-AIDS tuberculosis, malaria, food insecurity, malnutrition, landmines, and human trafficking. Additionally, civil society programs bolster civic participation to advance democracy, human rights, and governance. These programs are critical in enabling Zimbabweans to hold their government accountable. None of our foreign assistance involves direct funding to the government of Zimbabwe. Over the last two years, the competing factions within the ruling party, the Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, ZANU-PF, engaged in a bitter and public power struggle aimed at determining President Mugabe's successor. Grace Mugabe's rise in power unsettled others in the party who derived their legitimacy from their ties to Zimbabwe's independent struggle. These dynamics led to then-Vice President Emerson Manangagwa's dismissal on November 6th. Military actions purportedly in defense of President Mugabe, the party, and war veterans followed. Over the next several days, the world watched as hundreds of thousands of Zimbabweans marched in the streets and parliament, parliamentary impeachment proceedings began. Mugabe resigned on November 21st, ending his 37 years of rule. The rapid turn of events appears to have unified the people of Zimbabwe around a sense of hope and possibility for the future. The change in government also offers an opportunity for reform that could allow the United States to re-engage 
in ways we have not recently been able to do. In support of the people, we will expect to see genuine economic and political reform, including free and fair elections in 2018 in accordance with Zimbabwe's constitution. U.S. engagement with newly inaugurated President Mnangagwa and his administration must be based on demonstrated behavior, not merely rhetorical intentions. President Mnangagwa has a window of opportunity to demonstrate his commitment to a democratic, just, healthy, and prosperous Zimbabwe. Our policy of re-engagement will focus on constitutional democracy, free and fair elections, respect for human rights and the rule of law, and an improved trade and investment climate, among other issues. The country has a strong civil society and an experienced political opposition whose voices must count in charting a path forward. The military needs to return to its barracks and state institutions should be demilitarized. Perpetrators of abuses against civilians should be held accountable regardless of party affiliation. The government must engage in hard economic reforms including addressing budget deficits, reforming the Indigenization Act, and reducing corruption. We will want to see improved protection of fundamental freedoms, a freer media, and a truth and reconciliation process. The people of Zimbabwe deserve these reforms and many more. We welcome President Manangagwa's statement of intent to carry out economic reforms made during his, his inauguration speech, and we are assessing the budget released last week. We believe critical political reforms deserve equal attention and cannot wait. In particular, elections must be free, fair, credible, and inclusive, allowing Zimbabweans to choose their own leaders. Everyone in Zimbabwe should enjoy the right to peaceful assembly without undue interference and to voice their opinions and their vo voice and their vote without fear. We are working closely with international partners in Harare and our respective capitals. Similarly, the State Department will continue to consult with Congress, the White House, and other agencies on our policies regarding Zimbabwe. If President Mnangagwa wants improved diplomatic relations and access to international and assistance and cooperation, particularly with the United States, his government must first implement reforms. The United States stands ready to help the government and people of Zimbabwe to achieve these goals. U.S. private sector members are eager for improvements in the business climate that will encourage them to invest and trade. They see promise in agriculture, tourism, energy, and mining. People-to-people -people exchanges are important as well. We will continue using our vibrant exchange programs to foster a better understanding of the United States amongst Zimbabwe's future leaders and vice versa. We will continue to encourage Zimbabwe's highly educated populace to study in the United States. And we will strengthen internal networks that build professional savvy and entrepreneurial skills. We believe in a stable, peaceful, prosperous, and democratic Zimbabwe that reflects the will of its people and provides for their needs. Thank you very much, and I welcome the opportunity to answer the committee's questions. Thank you, Ms. Sullivan. Uh, let me start out. Uh, you mentioned that uh, our relationship with the new president and the new government will be based on reforms that they've undertaken and on behavior and not just rhetoric. Uh, what do you make of the moves so far uh, with regard to assembling a new government and cabinet? 
uh, as the committee has pointed out, uh, the government is composed of many people who were previously in the government. Uh, so it is a bit disappointing to see a lack of opposition members, uh, although it's not 100% clear that opposition members were ready to participate uh, in, in the current government. Um, we will look to engage with the government to continue to press for actual implementation of some of these uh, rhetorical um, signs of improvement in both the economic and political sphere. Taking a step back, uh, the, the Zimbabwean military went to great lengths to try to explain that this was not a coup, but rather a military realignment or some type of realignment. What are we calling it? as far as the State Department goes? Um, clearly there was uh, military involvement in events that led up to the resignation of President Mugabe. Uh, we have not labeled it a coup. This is a very technical term um, that uh, our lawyers and others are, are looking at at the moment. Mm. Um, normally, uh, if it's determined a coup, it would trigger a cutoff of direct assistance to the government at, at the moment, we have no direct right. uh, financial assistance to the government of Zimbabwe. Usually it's a pretty good rule of thumb that when somebody dressed in fatigues uh, who's just taken over the broadcast facility gives a statement, that's uh, usually what, uh, what, it, what it feels like. Um, with regard to uh, the behavior on the, or the changes that need to be made, um, we have an outsized influence obviously at the IMF and the World Bank. What do we plan to do with regard to, uh, there will be efforts made by some, some outside uh, governments and uh, organizations to uh, relieve uh, some of the sanctions um, and to, uh, to free up uh, money or funding uh, in the coming months. What will be our position? While we're engaging with the new government with an open mind, um, it's not enough to say it's a new government, so therefore uh, none of the sanctions or restrictions that were previously in place should apply. Uh, we will continue to um, look for signs of actual implementation. Um, for example, uh, the election that is coming up, uh, there are months and months of preparation that need to lead up to that, and um, we would be interested to see an openness or an invitation to send um, outside observers, uh, potentially as um, part of a group that might be led by an eminent African. Um, and these are things that would need to happen fairly soon and could give some indication of um, the intentions beyond the nice speeches. Do we have, uh, is there any, do we have any documents yet or timelines that uh, that we've put forward or perhaps that we could look at that the opposition leaders or others have, have, uh, have stated that need to happen in terms of uh, by this date, voter rolls need to be completed by this date, such and such has to, has to come down. Is there anything that, uh, that has been put together in that regard yet? Uh, we, we've not seen a, an actual timeline for leading up to the elections. Uh, there was encouraging news that the period for voter registration has been extended into February. Um, we are looking at um, what a lot of members of civil society have put forth as requests uh, or demands for the new government vis-a-vis uh, -vis actual democratic steps. Uh, and we are working very closely with our like-minded partners uh, and trying to remain in sync with, with them, both in Washington and 
Harare and in cap other capitals. Thank you. Senator Booker. I'm going to allow uh, Senator Coons to go first. Um, thank you, um, Senator Booker. Thank you, um, Chairman Flake. Uh, and thank you, Ambassador Sullivan. Um, it is uh, great to have an opportunity to talk with you and uh, to the next panel about uh, the transition underway in Zimbabwe and what the future might hold. As uh, Senator Flake referenced, we uh, met with uh, former President Mugabe in February 2016, and like many, I was very pleased to see him uh, go after 37 brutal years. But um, I think it's critical that uh, the people of Zimbabwe not see one dictator replaced by another. Uh, and so uh, I for one, I'm reluctant to see us take any steps uh, to lighten or relieve sanctions or other international restrictions on loans or partnership uh, until we see, as you suggested in your testimony, concrete steps uh, by the administration of Emerson and Nagagwa and uh, any successors. So walk me through three things, if you would. What are the key milestones for us to watch for um, to get a sense of um, uh, Emerson and Nagagwa's uh, capacity and willingness to enter significant reforms. Thank you, Senator. On As far as um, governance goes and respect for human rights, uh, we would like to see uh, immediate um, uh, implementation of freedom of expression uh, that has been lacking for decades in Zimbabwe, freedom of assembly. Uh, we are looking also for um, a free and responsible media, including social media. Um, the preparations for the elections, that I, as I mentioned, um, anti-corruption, uh, I believe they've given a 90-day window for people to return ill-gotten gains as an amnesty. Uh, will that happen? Will um, um, corruption be uh, pursued in an impartial way, uh, in an apolitical way? Um, how will things progress in terms of rule of law and due process? Uh, those are on the, on the um, governance side. On the economic side, um, the country is crumbling under crushing debt. Um, we also have a very low doing business environment there that is a deterrent. So we'd like to see a, an improved investment climate. Um, since investors vote with their feet, they are watching very closely uh, because there are potential opportunities there. Um, but investors want to be able to repatriate their, their earnings. Right. Uh, and again, the rule of law and a level playing field will be very important in the economic sphere as well. In addition, in the uh, security sector, uh, we would like to see the security sector earn the trust of the citizens, and that would include police reforms. I was struck that the budget request for this year for Zimbabwe, if I understood correctly, dropped 50, almost $60 million from the previous year and included no request for democracy and governance uh, programs. Uh, it's my expectation that there might be some reprogramming request or some increased willingness to partner with the robust civil society and free press that you referenced. What sort of role do you imagine that USAID and the State Department should play in the run-up to free and fair elections if we are genuinely making progress? Um, all of our influence is not necessarily tied up with the dollar figure, um, but to address that point, we do have some um, flexibility with some regional funds uh, that we could target if we saw an opportunity that looked viable there. Um, I think that our, our diplomats have a wonderful opportunity to use the bully pulpit uh, to coordinate with like-minded uh, international partners uh, and also to continue engaging with civil society organizations with whom um, we, we may not be currently giving assistance, but with whom we've cultivated relationships over the years. 
because fundamentally this will be about the people of Zimbabwe uh, and we want to support their aspirations for a country that can reach its full potential. Last question. Um, so China has long had an active role uh, in Zimbabwe during the liberation struggle and to now. What do you see as um, their influence in Zimbabwe compared to the United States? What do you see as their trajectory um, in Zimbabwe? And what do you think are their interests or their priorities compared to ours? Um, I agree with you that this is essentially up to the people of Zimbabwe and the actions that will determine their future will be taken by Zimbabweans. But um, it seems to me that this is a moment for the United States to show a principled leadership, um, active engagement and interest. But I'm wondering what uh, another major um, influencer in this country uh, has in mind for their um, short-term agenda as well. Well, as throughout the continent, uh, China is very interested in um, resource uh, acquisition and uh, in their interactions with the various host governments uh, have taken a very hands-off approach in terms of what they might consider uh, undue influence or uh, foreign interference. Um, so we don't expect there will be any change in terms of um, China's approach, um, but I think we have a window for the U.S. to engage in a way we haven't been able to engage um, that will involve U.S. businesses, which of course are private and we can't compel them to, to engage the way um, others perhaps have an opportunity with the state-owned enterprises uh, to engage. Well, thank you, Ambassador Sullivan. Um, thank you, Chairman Flake. I, I think you'll see significant and sustained interest from members of this subcommittee and other committees of the Congress um, as we try and encourage and support a movement towards a genuinely open and democratic society in Zimbabwe. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Chairman Flake, and, and um, thank you for holding this important hearing. We really appreciate uh, you being here. On November 17, 2017, the Department of Interior uh, published its determination that Zimbabwe was sufficiently stable to allow for the legal importation of elephant trophies uh, into the United States. This announcement was based on ratification of a new conservation plan in Zimbabwe in 2016 in the opinion that trophy hunting adds to the overall conservation of the species. The announcement, however, coincided with the coup of former President Robert Mugabe and a transfer of power to his vice president, underscoring the great instability in the region. Because of these events, the president tweeted that he would put the policy on hold, uh, which I appreciate very much. Wildlife trafficking decimates iconic species while uh, funding global terror organizations. The chairman of this committee and I've worked hard to stem the tide of poaching and illegal wildlife trafficking across the globe, and I'm proud of our bipartisan work in the last Congress to provide agencies and international institutions the funding and tools necessary to stymie and interdict wildlife trafficking. But I worry that the current administration's findings for the elephant and the lion will undermine that progress. Do you believe that Zimbabwe has adequate institutional controls to properly manage wildlife? Uh, that decision is um, currently being reviewed at the Fish and Wildlife Service in the Department of Interior. Um, as far as the stability or not at the moment, uh, we are taking very much a wait and see approach, um, but we're not sitting on our hands, staying home, we're engaging actively 
um, with members of the new government, with civil society, um, with other influential actors on the ground. Um, so I think the answer to that would be it's, it's too early to say what the level of stability is. And, and um, do you believe that in this period of upheaval, the government can regulate hunting of iconic species, including lions and elephants, in a manner that will prevent illegal wildlife trafficking? Uh, while there has been upheaval, there also seems to be a great deal of continuity uh, if you look at the cabinet that is currently in place. Um, so at this point, again, I would say that um, we're going in with our eyes wide open, uh, and this remains an area that we look at in terms of um, U.S. policy and also what it might mean to the Zimbabwean ecotourism industry, and they're looking for diversification of the economy. Um, this, you know, they have an opportunity to increase the 50,000 or so American tourists who go there. Um, and it's, so we're, we're just going to have to wait and see regarding their ability to um, manage. And this might be part of uh, security sector reforms that we could potentially look at. Yeah, th thank you for that answer. Me media reports indicate that Zimbabwe's Electoral Commission chairperson, uh, Justice Rita Makaro, uh, resigned abruptly on Friday without any rationale. The press is speculating that she was pressured to resign, and opposition leader uh, Morgan Chagangri uh, said that Makaro's resignation had opened a can of worms. What do you know about her successor and whether the change in leadership of the commission will make credible elections next year more or less likely? Senator, I'd like to take that question back and uh, respond for the record. That would be good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Booker. Thank you so much. So I, I'm just trying to understand the administration's position, given things that are going on right now. You've talked about a lot of reforms that we're looking and waiting for, reforms on this coming election and how important that is, a desire potentially to send election observers you talked about reforms in government, talked about reforms in the mining industry. Can you just tell me a little bit more about how, how you think we have, what leverage you think we have to ensure um, that, uh, um, that we can see, let's start with free and fair elections, to see that those elections happen. Is there any ways that you think we have to further leverage that or something that Congress could be doing? Well, I'll take the latter part of that question first, if I may. Um, uh, we certainly welcome engagement of Congress and um, travel to the region, uh, letters, engagement, and we will continue to work with you on, on the way forward. Um, as far as the leverage, uh, I think we, we see in place a new government that is uh, eager to have a sense of legitimacy that the predecessor government lacked, um, despite the fact that it's a lot of the same people. Uh, again, it offers an opportunity that we would like to um, try to work with and, and induce in a positive direction. Um, the country is having a severe economic crisis, and that is another point of leverage um, that uh, without the reforms, there will not be uh, good things happening on the economic front. And then finally, um, we are very tightly lashed up with our like-minded counterparts in country and uh, having ongoing discussions with them about... Um, the preparations for the election. So can I, can I interrupt you there? Sure. There have been reports that the British government may consider extending a bridge loan to Zimbabwe 
uh, in order to clear unpaid arrears and open up funding from the IMF and World Bank. Um, has the British government given you an indication that they plan to do this? Um, we don't have any uh, direct knowledge of that. We've seen some similar reporting. Um, Assistant, Acting Assistant Secretary Don Yamamoto was just in London this week. Uh, I'm positive that uh, Zimbabwe came up in the conversations. Uh, as far as I know, that specific angle did not come up, and we remain in a very united approach to this. Okay, great. Um, the uh, the uh, accountability for atrocities, which is, um, I think, something that is, is, as I'm sure you agree, is of profound importance. Tens of thousands uh, uh, have been killed uh, in numerous, uh, unfortunately, raids and, and, and operations and, and massacres. Church groups have documented an alarming uh, record of government-sponsored atrocities uh, before the 08 elections. Um, we, we see the State Department said in 2000 that Amangagua was widely feared and despised throughout the country, that's the State Department's words, and could uh, be an even more repressive leader than uh, Mugabe. Um, and, and so I understand that you're sort of having a wait and see and see if they're going to have inducements. But clearly, when it comes to accountability for atrocities, if there seems to be so much compelling evidence that this is someone that participated in, there, in, in this, how do you uh, 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 level that? Um, with our policies towards this new administration? Well, one, one of the things we'll be looking for is um, for the people and government of Zimbabwe to organize some sort of a truth and reconciliation process uh, so that they can work through these traumas of the past. Um, as far as President Monangagwa, he remains under U.S. sanctions. Um, and again, we, this is, government that is in front of us right now, and we're going to try to work to engage positively. Um, he, in his inauguration speech, really wanted people to look forward and forget about the past. We're not going to forget about the past. Um, we're going to keep that in mind as we deal with him and other members of the government. Um, but again, uh, not just appeal to their better natures, but uh, try to help uh, the government and the people of Zimbabwe move forward beyond this very, very dismal past track record of human rights. And, and just, you know, be, be candid with me if you can, to expect a government led by someone who participated and was responsible for horrific violations, uh, horrific uh, human rights uh, atrocities, to expect there to be a real truth and reconciliation coming from a government led by someone um, who, who is this, uh, who has a record, uh, 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 that uh, that from our own State Department seems to be so horrific. Is is, is should we as a, really be expecting uh, there to be a, a real truth and reconciliation process? Um, well, we, we certainly don't believe this will be a spontaneous um, course of action without a great deal of pressure and discussion. Um, and it's it's not just the United States. It's also, as I mentioned earlier, the like-minded partners and a very active civil society. Uh, there were. So many people out in the streets um, celebrating the prospect of a new Zimbabwe. Um, they have high expectations, and and we think in some ways, you know, maybe not dramatically yet, but the lines have moved, and um, the kinds of uh, oppression that people felt uh, obliged to withstand in the predecessor regime. I, I think that there is. It's been a bit of a game changer. Um, despite the fact that it's a lot of the same people who are running the show at this point. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Ambassador Sullivan, for your testimony. We'll now um, turn to our other panel and give them a few minutes. So we'll recess for just two minutes while the new panel comes. Appreciate uh, the answers you've given today. Thank you. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health will now come back to order. Uh, subcommittee has just heard testimony from Pris uh, Principal Deputy Assistant Sullivan, representing the administration's view. Now we'll hear from a second panel, uh, each of whom has uh, deep personal experience with Zimbabwe. In this group, we have an award-winning journalist, a former government minister, and an NGO activist. All have raised their voices in opposition to Robert Mugabe and the Zimbabwean government using different platforms all have deep roots in Zimbabwe. Two of the witnesses were in Zimbabwe during the military takeover. One is a former constitutional lawyer. Two have been human rights attorneys. Uh, all have strong personal interest, obviously, in Zimbabwe's future and are used, using their unique talents to raise uh, awareness of the issues and to change lives in Zimbabwe. Uh, first, we'll turn to Peter Godwin, award-winning journalist, best-selling author, documentary filmmaker. He's written extensively about his own experiences growing up in Zimbabwe and of human rights abuses committed under Mugabe's leadership with the support of the new president, Emerson Mnangagwa. Tendai Vidi is uh, currently a key opposition leader in Zimbabwe. Uh, he served as Zimbabwe's Minister of Finance from 2009 to 2013 as uh, part of the Government of National Unity was the Secretary General of the Movement for Democratic Change and is now President of the People's Democratic Party. As a former finance minister, Mr. Biddy uh, is uh, uniquely poised to address economic and corruption issues in Zimbabwe. Last but not least, uh, Diwa Mavingkar is uh, the Southern African Director of the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. In 2012, he co-founded the Zimbabwe Democracy Institute, a public policy research think tank in Harare. Mr. Mavinkar is also in, was also in Zimbabwe during the military takeover, uh, updating a wide audience via, via Twitter uh, on the events there. Uh, with that, we'll rep recognize uh, Mr. Godwin. 
Thank you, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, and other members. Thank you for inviting us and for being interested in Zimbabwe in a, a world where I'm sure you have many other things to distract you right now. Um, <clears throat> just before dawn on November the 14th, General S.B. Moyo of the Zimbabwe National Army went onto state television to announce that Robert Mugabe was under house arrest. Mugabe's 37-year reign, he was Zimbabwe's only leader since independence in 1980, was over. Zimbabweans soon poured out onto the streets to celebrate. Mugabe had been unseated by an internal faction fighting within his ruling ZANU-PF party. It wasn't primarily ideological or even ethnic. It was essentially a family feud on steroids, and it pitted old against young. His wife, Grace, had made a, who made a bid to succeed him, is 41 years his junior, too young to have fought in the Liberation War, hitherto a sine qua non for leadership of most Southern African liberation parties. Her attempt to create a dynastic succession, a la Evita Peron, Imelda Marcos, or Madame Mao, proved premature. Over his 37 years in power, Mugabe had hollowed out ZANU-PF, reducing it to a personality cult by getting rid of anyone who challenged his authority. But Grace overreached when she persuaded her increasingly enfeebled husband to fire his vice president, Emerson Munangagwa, her main rival. This was too much for the military leadership, who had close ties to Monangagwa as he'd held defense and intelligence portfolios for much of his ministerial career. I think you can expect Monangagwa to be strongly in hock to the military, who after all elevated him to the presidency. In the end, this was a continuity coup to protect the power of the party's old guard. General Moyo, who announced the coup, is the new foreign minister, the country's official interlocutor with the world. Air Marshal Parent Shiri is promoted to the cabinet too. He was the officer commanding 5th Brigade at the time of the Matabeleland Land massacres in the early 1980s. And it's speculated that General Constantino Chiwenga, head of the Zimbabwe National Army and architect of the coup, may be named vice president, <clears throat> may be named vice president. Even if not, he will continue to be the power behind the throne, the kingmaker. The veterans of the Liberation War for Independence are once again ascendant too. Their leader, Chris Mutsvangwa, has been named as special advisor to the new president. And what are we to make of the new president? You should expect Monangagwa to entice his own people and the world with the reformist stance. He will try to rebrand the party, presenting it as ZANU-PF 2.0, ZANU-PF light, non-ideological, technocratic, managerial, open for business, safe once more for foreign investors. He has already mentioned a partial return of land to some white commercial farmers. He has embraced the rhetoric of anti-corruption, offering a three-month amnesty window to return ill-gotten gains. But these promises don't stand up to scrutiny. What, for example, of his own corruption and that of many of the new cabinet, eight of the 22 are on the US sanctions list, joined by bonds of massively corrupt self-enrichment and repressive political violence. For them to put distance between who they now purport to be and their nearly four-decade record in office is preposterous. And for Zimbabweans, as well as the international community, to believe this is to fall for ZANU-PF 
for, the, for a ZANU-PF confidence trick, a survival bait and switch. ZANU-PF has long been a vampiric entity, sucking the blood from the nation. Munangagwa is 75 years old. He's most unlikely to undergo a benign metamorphosis. He has been at the very center of ZANU-PF's repressive security web until recently Mugabe's trusted consigliere. He, is, he headed the feared Central Intelligence Organization, the CIO, at the time of the Matabililan massacre, during which upwards of 20,000 civilians were killed. And he rolled out the terrible reprisal campaign during the post-2008 election violence, when thousands of opposition supporters were badly tortured and more than 200 killed. All of these and more besides were carried out by this same political party, kleptocratic, violent, repressive. What are the alternatives for Zimbabweans in the 2018 elections? You have before you today a senior member of the main opposition party, the MDC, so I will defer to him to summarize his own party's current status. However, opposition fragmentation is enormously beneficial to ZANU-PF, allowing it a real possibility of, willing, of winning at the polls, even if opposition parties attract more votes overall. For the opposition, it is, therefore, imperative to unify or at least broker electoral pacts. It's also crucial that the elections are free and fair and perceived as such by the electorate. ZANU-PF has a long precedent of election, electoral foul play. If this is to be avoided in 2018, external monitoring will be essential. It is quite inadequate for observers to parachute into Zimbabwe shortly before the poll. There must be a persistent presence on the ground long, long before that, as registration procedures need to be scrutinized. In conclusion, if we reward Munangagwa's same as it ever was, ZANU-PF, for its internal coup, for example, by prematurely dropping individual sanctions, we would help cement the culture of impunity that already infects Zimbabwe, where the perpetrators never face the consequence of their actions and where real freedom and reform remain elusive. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Godwin. Mr. Biddy. Thank you, Chairman Fleck, Ranking Member Buka, and other members of the subcommittee. I come here with my colleagues from the Opposition Alliance, known as the MDC Alliance. I travel with uh, Honorable uh, Nelson Chamisa and uh, Mr. Jacob Ngarivumwe. We thank you for inviting us to this uh, uh, great center of American democracy. The 14th of November 2017 began a series of major life-changing events in Zimbabwe that will forever redefine the political and constitutional landscape of our country. On that day, military tanks invaded the streets of the capital, Harare, and in the early hours of the 15th, the military captured Zimbabwe's broadcasting houses and made it clear implicitly that the executive was no longer in control. On 18th November, hundreds of thousands of Zimbabweans marched alongside military personnel in the streets of Harare and Bulawayo 
and demanded the resignation of President Mugabe. On 21 November, in the middle of impeachment proceedings in Parliament, President Mugabe quietly, if not inelegantly, announced his resignation. With President Mugabe's departure, Zimbabwe now faces an uncertain future, but one which uh, presents real opportunities for reconstructing, rebuilding, and refabricating a new Zimbabwean story and a new Zimbabwean uh, society. Without a doubt, the 37 years of President Mugabe's rule were a sad story of capture, coercion, corruption, poverty, and delegitimization. Zimbabweans lived in fear under a system that paid no respect to their rights and a system that saw continuous impoverishment and suffering, loss of livelihoods amongst uh, ordinary uh, citizens. President Mugabe presided over one of the most autocratic African regimes that stood head and shoulders with the likes of current dictators like Obiang in Equatorial Guinea, Bia in Cameroon, Isaias Afeweki in Eritrea, Aubeshia in Sudan, and Yoweri Museveni in Uganda. What we now need as a country is a genuine break uh, from a tortured past and not a continuation of the old order. The new Zimbabwe, which the majority of people that marched on the 18th of November 2017 crave for, has to be founded on the values and principles of constitutionalism, the rule of law, a just and prosperous society. And in the new Zimbabwe, every citizen must be free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And we contend, Mr. Chairman, that our country is in the middle of a transition, a transition from a very unhappy uh, regime of uh, 13, 37 years uh, of the torture and pain that I've described above. But like any transition, it can be a captured transition. It can be a derailed transition. It can be a hijacked uh, transition. That is not what the thousands and thousands of people who marched on the 18th of November 2017 are seeking for. The, those people who marched in Harare, in Bulawayo, in New York, in Cape Town, in Johannesburg are looking for a fresh start, a genuine transition uh, to a new Zimbabwean society. But what is the precondition to move to this uh, genuine uh, transition? In our view, the starting point must be returned to true legitimacy, constitutionalism, and the rule of law. The roadmap to legitimacy is the fundamental precondition to the establishment of a sustainable, just, and free Zimbabwe. This roadmap must be anchored on clear benchmarks. These include, number one, the immediate restoration of constitutionalism, the rule of law, and legitimate civilian rule. The military must be demobilized from the streets. Number two, and very importantly, the implementation of genuine electoral reforms to ensure that the election of July, August 2018 is free, fair, credible, and legitimate. Those electoral reforms must include, number one, 
the preparation of a brand new biometric voters rule to which all political parties sign on to and agree to. Number two, agreement on an independent electoral management body, particularly in the postmath of the resignation of the ZEC chairperson, Justice Rita Makarau. Number three, and this is very important, the introduction of a diaspora vote. Zimbabwe is four, more than four million of its citizens that are in their diaspora. And in terms of section 67 of our constitution, they have a right to vote and that right to vote must be respected. Number three, sorry, number four, the introduction of international observation and poll monitors who must come into Zimbabwe months before the election as opposed to the current practice where a few African observers uh, come into Zimbabwe a few days before uh, the election and enjoy uh, the fine hospitalities at the few remaining fine hotels in, in, in Zimbabwe. Number, number five, we consider that there must be a defined role of the UN and, and its agencies uh, in our electoral process. There must be full access to the media. There must be a safe environment for campaigning and voting, which is free from intimidation. And naturally, there must be a repeal of the notorious Public Order Security Act, the Access to Information and Protection uh, Act, IPA. Number three, there must be political and institutional reform which include aligning the country's laws with the 2013 constitution, and in particular, actualizing the provisions dealing with devolution and the land question. Number four, there must be a modicum of economic reforms that focus on uh, macroeconomic stability, uh, growing a shared economy, and addressing the huge challenge of unemployment and underdevelopment. Number five, and this is very key, uh, given the levels of intolerance, the the destruction of the social fabric of our country, we contend that there must be the restoration of the social contract, including the renewal and rebirth of a new Zimbabwe that shuns corruption and promotes national healing and reconciliation. The above roadmap must be guaranteed and underwritten by the international community. In this regard, the role of the African Union and the United Nations will be critical. It will also be important for us as the opposition to give the people of Zimbabwe a, a, a genuine a, a chance. Uh, it is important that uh, 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 we continue with the path of unity that we've demonstrated and are demonstrating uh, back at home and that we put uh, on the table uh, uh, programs uh, that will address the fundamental uh, challenges uh, facing uh, our people. And I'm glad to say, Mr. Chairman, uh, that uh, this is exactly uh, what we are uh, doing. We also contend that the new authorities must show some signs of a commitment to real transformation other than cosmetic statements on the economy. The real danger is that they will pursue a Beijing model in respect of which there are nominal improvements on the economy while political space is closed and democracy is muzzled. It is therefore important that the new authorities show signs of commitment to real change they could, for instance, begin by openly acknowledging and apologizing for the, hum, uh, for the major human rights abuses of the past four decades. In particular, Kukura Wundi, uh, the cleanup operation known by the Monica, Operation Morambatsina, and the vicious uh, 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 2008 uh, election uh, violence 
in respect of which thousands of opposition and ordinary uh, citizens uh, were uh, victimized. They could, for instance, order an inquiry in the into the disappearance of human rights activists, including Patrick Nabanyama and Itai Zamara. They could, for instance, mollify many Zimbabweans by ordering a judicial inquiry into Zimbabwe's missing diamond revenues, estimated to be around $15, $15 billion. Mr. Chairman, we have lost a lot of time in Zimbabwe, fighting amongst ourselves. One hopes that the fresh uh, beam of light that we saw on 18 November 2017 becomes a permanent bright shining star that shows us the path forward. Zimbabweans must fix our own country and repair the wounds of the past, but we can't do this alone. As Zimbabwe begins the, this quest for transformation, it shall need the support of the international community, including the United States and Congress in particular at this uh, critical uh, uh, st stage. We know that this struggle has been long and difficult, but we're confident that we'll complete what we uh, in the Movement for Democratic Change Alliance started in 1999 when we formed the MDC. I thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Mavinka. Thank you, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, and other members of the subcommittee for giving me the opportunity to testify on behalf of Human Rights Watch at this hearing on Zimbabwe. Mr. Chairman, my testimony will first lay out the human rights situation in Zimbabwe since the military takeover, and then highlight key recommendations to the US government for action to press the interim Zimbabwean government to ensure a rights-respecting environment leading to democratic, credible, transparent, and peaceful elections and political stability thereafter. Following the military takeover, Robert Mugabe resigned as president on November 21, and on November 24, was replaced by his former deputy, Emerson Mnangagwa, who has his own long record of human rights violations. In his inaugural speech, Mnangagwa confirmed that elections would take place in 2018 as scheduled, but did not address critical issues, notably security sector, media, electoral reforms necessary to ensure credible, free, and fair elections. As reports of the military, um, of abuses by the military since the takeover began to emerge, the excitement and euphoria that many Zimbabweans had greeted the end of Mugabe's rule quickly fizzled out to be replaced by uneasiness and uncertainty. Allegations are rife that between November 14 and 24, the army arrested and detained a number of Mugabe's associates without providing information about the arrests or places and conditions of detention. Since the military takeover, soldiers have not returned to the barracks, but instead are now involved in policing on the streets. This is the same military that has been credibly implicated in rights violations against the general population during the Mugabe years. On November 24, High Court Judge George Wesha ruled that the military intervention that led to Mugabe's ouster was lawful under Zimbabwe's constitution. Whatever the merits of the ruling, the judgment could embolden the military to carry out further incursions in Zimbabwe's political or electoral affairs in the future. The highly partisan stance of Zimbabwe's military leadership 
particularly without meaningful security sector reforms, significantly reduces the chances that free, fair, and credible elections can be held. There is urgent need ahead of the elections for Zimbabwe's constitutional court to review Judge Chiwesh's ruling and ensure that members of the security forces observe strict political neutrality. Failure to ensure a professional, independent, and nonpartisan role of the security forces may make it difficult to deliver elections needed to put Zimbabwe on a democratic, rights-respecting track. Following the military takeover, the leadership of the Southern African Development Community, SADC, called on all stakeholders in Zimbabwe to peacefully resolve the nation's political challenges. SADC leaders also welcomed Mugabe's decision to resign, pledging to support the 2018 elections. While the African Union initially condemned the military takeover, the regional body later welcomed Mugabe's resignation. The AU and SADC have yet, however, to address the need for the new administration to design a roadmap for democratic elections and the political neutrality and non-interference of the security forces in civilian and electoral affairs of the country. In early December, the European Union ambassador to Zimbabwe, Philip Van Damme, said the EU will not provide significant new funding to Zimbabwe until the country holds free, fair, and credible elections. Human Rights Watch is of the view that full re-engagement with the Zimbabwean government should be based on firm commitment from the interim administration in Harare that they will institute measures that will ensure tangible and long overdue democratic and electoral reforms. A key benchmark for increased US government engagement should be an independent assessment of the environment in which the 2018 elections are conducted and the transfer of power to an elected civilian government. It is important now that the military leadership publicly announce its commitment to credible, free and fair elections and that it respects the outcome of the elections. Mnangagwa's government should be encouraged through public statements to demonstrate commitment to accountability, justice for human rights abuses, and respect for the rule of law in Zimbabwe. We believe that Mnangagwa's recent calls to let bygones be bygones should not extend to serious human rights violations since 1980, many of which implicate the military. Like the Gukurawundi period from 1982 to 1987, when the 5th Brigade Army Unit carried out widespread uh, human rights abuses, including the torture and unlawful killing of an estimated 20,000 people, military abuses in 2008 elections, as well as the military abuses in the Marange Diamond Fields uh, in the east of uh, the country. Currently, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, uh, which is charged with overseeing the 2018 elections, is dominated by partisan state intelligence and military officials. Electoral reforms should start with making the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission independent and professional. The commission is compiling a new voters uh, register. Unlike countries like Botswana or Mozambique, which guarantee the diaspora vote, Zimbabwe does not provide uh, or implement the diaspora vote unless in diplomatic mi missions. The Mnangagwa government should also take steps to amend or repeal repressive laws 
uh, that exist and that had been used under the Mugabe government. Our key recommendations uh, to the U.S. government include that uh, the U.S. government should maintain the existing policy towards Zimbabwe until the military removes itself from politics and the 2018 elections are legitimately assessed to be peaceful, transparent, free and fair, and that power is smoothly transmitted to the newly elected government. Uh, press through public statements and support to non-governmental organizations in Zimbabwe for the accountability and justice for past serious abuses and respect for the rule of law. Uh, urge the Trump administration to make Zimbabwe's transition a priority in the region and work closely with the SADC to press Zimbabwe's political leadership to ensure the political neutrality of the security forces, impartially investigate and appropriately prosecute alleged abuses by the military, and provide for the timely and sufficient deployment of domestic and SADC-led international observers uh, to promote credible, free and fair elections in Zimbabwe. We also urge the U.S. administration to provide direct financial and technical support to the government that comes to power through credible, free and fair elections, and that is committed to strengthening democratic state institutions that promote the rule of law, good governance, and human rights. Mr. Chairman, my sincere thanks once again for the opportunity to address this subcommittee, and I'm happy to uh, respond to any questions that the committee might have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for, for your testimony. I'll start with questioning uh, Mr. Godwin. Uh, Mnangagwa has made a few changes uh, that are a, an appeal to populism, I guess. He's gotten rid of the big motorcade that uh, the president traveled around in. Um, will this work? Is, is he a charismatic leader? Uh, and how were the celebrations uh, in the streets? Uh, should they be interpreted uh, as we're glad Mugabe is going or we're glad Manangagwa is coming back? Um, I think the, the great tragedy of the jubilation that you saw um, as Tandibiti was referring to, not just in Harare and other places in Zimbabwe, but in cities around the world where there's a considerable Zimbabwean diaspora, is that, is that what, what those celebrations showed primarily or almost exclusively was the hu a huge relief that Mugabe had gone after 37 years, that you'd had this kind of cold hand of the stasis on this nation. It had had a no other leader. Um, I felt like it was almost coming out of some kind of Stockholm syndrome where you'd been chained, chained to the radiator in the basement and everybody was just came out into the light blinking and were enormously relieved. And I felt bad at the time for being curmudgeonly and saying this is going to be misinterpreted as a vote of confidence in Monangagwa. People were jumping on the tanks and saying, this is great. And the iconography of it all, you could be outsiders could be forgiven for interpreting it as though it had been a people's revolution. And it wasn't. I mean, the people were bystanders. We were spectators. We were, we, people showed their huge relief at Mugabe's departure. But this wasn't, these weren't celebrations in, in, in favor of Monangagwa or even the army, although people in the short term were grateful that the army had been the crowbar that, that got Mugabe out. And these messages got mixed in those, in those very early days. And I think to some extent we were all 
caught up in the kind of just you know in the in the relief of the moment when you've been under one authoritarian figure for that long and it is my enormous regret now that we didn't that that we didn't hold back and for the the regional institutions in particular for the AU and for SADC and for South Africa and for the international community to withdraw to to withhold any kind of recognition and whatever till some of the things we've all been talking about were achieved because that was our moment of greatest leverage. Now, it, we, we, in many respects, and I mean, I, I cop to being pessimistic here, I, I, it's my view that we've gone back to the status quo ante. Now, it's possible that Munangagwa, who, for, for, if I'm not mistaken, for at least two occasions was unable to win his own constituency, um, uh, is not a charis was not a charismatic leader, was a backroom person, kept a very low profile. But we're already seeing him wrap himself in the regalia of, of the personality cult. We were just looking earlier at the, the new fabric that's being produced with his image on it and giving himself um, a, a doctorates and one thing, another. And, and you see people rushing to where power is. So I don't think we can hope that he'll be, that, that somehow in, in his lack of charisma originally, that there'll be some room for maneuver there. I, it, it, I, I doubt it. My, my problem with all of this is that if you look at the history of Southern Africa, in every single country in Southern Africa that has fought an anti-colonial uh, liberation war where, where that liberation party then comes into power, not one single one of those parties have ever lost power. So you've still got... Frelimo in Mozambique, the MPLA in Angola, SWAPO in Namibia, ANC in South Africa, and ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe. And, and having been in the Liberation War has such a strong validation for a political party that it's extremely difficult um, for them to be eased aside in, the, in, in a general democratic way, a bit like Castro in Cuba or something. This is a, that, that, other, that opposition parties find it very difficult to, to get that same validity. So, I, I, I mean, I don't think that... I think that you'll see very quickly that Monangagwa will, will secure his position both as a head of ZANU-PF and, and, and as a president of the country. Thank you. Mr. Bidi, um, Zimbabwe's economic recovery will, will uh, require resolving about a $10 billion debt. Uh, when should the international community... Uh, restart debt relief uh, discussions and uh, the lending process. Uh, what are the benchmarks? When should this happen? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think that um, on the on one of the issues that uh, the country needs to address is self-evidently the issue of a collapsed economy, an economy in respect of which uh, 95% of our people are not uh, employed, an economy in respect of which uh, since 2012 we have been on a downward uh, a, a, a spiral, an economy in respect of which uh, uh, our, our, total, our, our current account is totally skewered, our capital account is totally skewered, and, um, and there's no livelihoods for people, people are suffering. So the economy needs to be addressed and addressed as a, a matter of uh, agency. But it's quite clear that one of the major stumbling blocks 
around the economy is the issue, number one, of, of domestic debt. We have a crippling uh, domestic debt and a budget deficit that is, in fact, uh, over 15% uh, of total uh, expenditure. They propose to reduce that to a mere 4%, but this is going to be a, a challenge. There's no question that uh, we have to walk the talk as a country. There's no question that uh, uh, the key uh, benchmark here, the key precondition, is how we conduct the 2018 uh, election. Um, the 2018 election is going to be a major test on whether or not we can move away uh, from the past 37 years uh, of corruption, capture and coercion into a new uh, order, into a new uh, Zimbabwe. So a lot will depend uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the next election. If we are able to deliver as a country a free, fair, legitimate election in respect of which everyone accepts uh, the results thereof and the provisions of the constitution spelled out in section two of our, of our constitution, uh, uh, the founding values of the constitution that deal with power transfer are respected and there is genuine power transfer in Zimbabwe, then quite clearly there is an obligation on the international community to assist us in resolving particularly uh, the debt question we, where we have to engage the World Bank the IMF, the African Development Bank, and the Paris Club of uh, Lenders. Thank you. Senator Booker. So, so I, I just have to say that I'm not, uh, you know, the testimony that you all prepared and the testimony that you all gave does not make me that optimistic about uh, the 2018 elections. And um, uh, Mr. Biddy, you said, uh, you know, in your testimony, in your, your uh, um, oral testimony, even just the military still, their presence in the streets right now, um, that they have not demilitarized in the streets is, is somewhat, um, is somewhat uh, concerning to me. Um, the massive amounts of corruption that I've read about and that you all have written about and, and spoken about um, the perversion of the mining industry that's going on right now, the, the, the self-dealing, um, the protectionism of a, of a government that may have changed its principal figure, but really has not changed the players, many of them who are under United States sanction already. And, and I guess my, my, my frustration with this um, is that I, I don't believe we have an administration through the State Department as, as focused on um, not to mention Zimbabwe, but uh, other crises in, in Africa uh, from the DRC to South Sudan. I just do not believe our administration um, is prioritizing this amidst a, a true crisis. Um, and, and I guess, um, you know, there's obviously an appeal uh, to keep um, our sanction regime in, in, in place. Uh, Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act um, uh, passed in 2001 to keep it in place, but I'm just not feeling that that is enough um, in terms of trying to create, do everything we can as the United States of America, and as Mr. Biddy told me, that this one of the guiding light democracies, that we're really engaging enough. And I guess what I'm looking for um, uh, from the panelists, and really uh, I benefit from having um, uh, a, a, a ranking member, uh, excuse me, a, a chairman of this committee who is very engaged, very focused. I guess what I'm hoping is that you might inform us on additional actions we could be taking um, to help bring about the kind of the long list of reforms. Mr. Mr. Biddy, you, you, you laid out the 
the Congressional Research Service, which we had laid out, I mean, everybody's laying out what needs to happen and the kind of reforms, economic reforms, military reforms, constitutional reforms, election reforms. I mean, I'm seeing that what the pathway is and the benchmarks, but I'm just not, I'm not going to leave here today feeling that confident that this is something that we're going to be able to achieve uh, given the, the, the what's going on. Now, you all have been incredibly generous to come to the United States, to come here, changing some significant plans to come here, but I'm wondering if you could be more directive to a to a junior senator uh, uh, in the United States of America that if you were where we were, what would you be pushing the State Department to do? What would you be using our position to really change what I am sorry, I just don't have confidence that 2018 is gonna bring about the kind of reforms. Um, I do not have confidence that the very people that committed atrocities are gonna somehow uh, um, create a process by which uh, there can be accountability for those atrocities. And I worry about the people of Zimbabwe right now who are suffering an economy that is in, in, in very bad shape, unemployment rates that are extraordinarily high. There are a lot of folks just, this is, this is a humanitarian crisis going on. And, and really it's a crisis stimulated by a governance crisis because Zimbabwe is a, a country of great wealth, great competitive advantage, great opportunities, and the, the, the block towards the kind of reforms that can have Zimbabwe thriving, a nation that used to be one of our, one of the region's breadbaskets. I mean, there's so many, there's so much greatness in Zimbabwe, but I really see that the obstacle is governance. So I guess I, this is just a plea um, to the panelists, and maybe you can go one at a time and my time will be expired, but um, to give me some uh, direction, to give this committee of committed bipartisan folks, the people you saw in from Senator Young, obviously Senator Flake, Senator Coons, feel a passionate love of, the, of Zimbabwe and a concern for the people. I would love it maybe we just go one at a time to give me some direction over this next year uh, to maybe ramp up American influence to bring about a, a, a more robust democratic institutions. And maybe we can start with uh, Mavahinga. Um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, for us at um, Human Rights Watch, the key really is to acknowledge that what we have now is not uh, the normal, is not uh, something that should be accepted in the sense of having the military on the streets. Um, and therefore, uh, the U.S. administration could um, strongly push the Southern African Development Community uh, and the African Union and other uh, players to insist on a roadmap for democratic elections um, and to then say, uh, as uh, my colleagues have said, that a key benchmark really to uh, review uh, relations is an independent assessment of the environment in which the 2018 elections are held. And this includes... Uh, domestic and international observers uh, to elections having uh, full access to the country, to all parts of the country, without interference. And uh, this would um, also include ensuring that um, watching closely the replacement of um, the chairperson of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, uh, who has uh, just resigned, that, that person who replaces uh, is someone who is known to be independent, impartial, Nonpartisan and with the capacity to deliver a, a democratic election. So uh, a, a strong focus on a democratic election 
uh, ahead of uh, re-engagement would be key moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I just want to say, I didn't mean my criticism when I the State Department. We had a wonderful witness, um, Ms. Sullivan, who was here before, dedicated people in the State Department um, who've been focused on this issue. I, I really mean administrative prioritization in terms of reflected in their budget, reflected in, in many of the vacancies that we're seeing around Africa. I'm sorry, Mr. Bede, I just want to make sure that my comments weren't misinterpreted to the extraordinary public servant we had in the first panel. Um, Mr. Biddy. Uh, and at some point, that. Mr. Biddy, in your response, could you say my name again? Because the way you say Buka, it just makes me, <laughs> it's, just, it's just really, it's, I, can't, I can't get over how wonderful that is. I need to record that. That's what I'm calling him for now. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I think your conclusions uh, might um, lead to the position that uh, of, of, of pessimism. Uh, but but we as Zimbabweans uh, are hopeful that we will uh, go to destination uh, New Zimbabwe. Uh, this is not Zimbabwe is not the first country that is difficult that the international community has had to deal with and is dealing with. You have got uh, hopeless places like like Somalia, like South Sudan. Uh, Eritrea, the Democratic uh, Republic of uh, Congo. But when you look at Zimbabwe, there are certain drivers of, of change. We are in a genuine uh, transition that is not just restricted from or limited to the fact that uh, President Mugabe is, is, is no more. There are certain drivers of change uh, that make a genuine transformation inevitable, whether it's next year or it's five years from now, they're genuine drivers of, 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 of change. Number one is the economy. People are suffering, people are excluded, people are delegitimized. It can go on as, as is the status quo right now. It can be business as usual. Where you have 95% of your people unemployed, where you have 82% of your people surviving on less than US 35 cents a day, something has to give. So the new authorities and everyone of us know that there must be change and, and huge change. The, 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 the military intervention in November has created huge demand, huge expectations, and the honeymoon period has been very short. People want delivery, people want action. So everyone in Zimbabwe, the civic society, the churches, the opposition, and the new authorities, they all understand that we have to deliver something on the table for suffering Zimbabwe. That's a driver of change. Number two is the youth. 69% of our, of our people are below the age of 35. We are producing about 500,000 graduates every year, but we can't give them uh, uh, jobs. By 2045, our population would have doubled in Zimbabwe. Mm. The economy is not growing sufficiently to absorb the, 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 the population bulge. So that on its own is a, is a driver of, uh, of, of, of change. You have an opposition that is re reorganizing, that is coming us together. You have seen us here as a, as a, as, as a team. That's an important uh, driver of, 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 of change. Uh, so I've absolutely no doubt in my mind that uh, that uh, there will be some change. The people that came out in the streets of Zimbabwe 
including in places like 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 New York here, uh, like like South Africa, Jobek and and Cape Town, they were sending a message that they were ready for change. They are demanding change, and the majority of people who were in those matches were millennials, young people who want genuine transformation uh, in their in their country. So the United States. Congress must continue to do what it has done very well in the past. Number one, interface with our people. Zimbabwe, the United States remains the biggest donor, the biggest supplier of overseas development assistance in Zimbabwe. You are very active in our health uh, 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 you know, in, in, in sector, uh, for instance. You used to call it humanitarian plus plus. That support must continue because it's interfacing uh, with, with our people. The support to the democratic processes, which you have been known for for so many years, must continue. Engagement with our government on these key issues that we are discussing is very key. I think everyone must know that there's a reward for good behavior. There's a reward for constitutionalism. There's a reward for, uh, for uh, international engagement. So right now is a great opportunity for, for, for interfacing, for saying to Zimbabwe, you have a great opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity. Notwithstanding that it might appear so gloomy, it might appear so desperately pessimistic, the bottom line is that we've got an opportunity and we don't intend to squander this opportunity. Thank you, Ms. Kitty. And thank you for your just courage in general uh, as part of the opposition. Um, Mr. Scott, will you take me home, please, sir? Um, I completely understand your frustration, and all of we we share it too. This has gone on for an awful long time. We've we've lost a whole generation to this situation, um, and sometimes I think we are stuck in this sterile binary. And Zimbabweans are a very hopeful people, and we we we're easy to peddle hope too, and we are we we have low expectations, and they're often dashed. Um, I do think, I mean, if that a period, sometimes one is, is tempted to indulge in a period of blue sky thinking to say, we've had these sanctions, these individualized sanctions in place for however long, and they've made no effect whatsoever. They've, and in fact, what they've done, to some extent, critics will say, is provided ZANU-PF with a very convenient excuse for every time the economy is bad, they say, oh, it's sanctions, it's sanctions, it's not us, blame America, blame the EU, whatever. And it shields them from the consequences of their own mismanagement. Bear in mind that Zimbabwe, as far as I understand it, is, if not the, one of the fastest shrinking economies in the history of, of peacetime failure of economies. I and mean, you have to look far and wide to find a, a self-inflicted, um, you know, failed state spiral that's not got, that doesn't involve war, which is, it's purely incompetence and corruption and patronage. On that subject, I mean, there are two other things, and I'm not necessarily recommending these, but if one's, one's casting around for alternatives, because clearly what we've been doing hasn't been working. One of the things to do is to do what they did in Lancaster House, which is that you bring together a huge pot of money. You basically put all the things that you would, and it's not necessarily new money, but you bring the international community together, all the donors, all the you know, bilateral aid, et cetera, et cetera, and you hold this thing out and you coordinate it and you say, if you do these certain things, if you meet these certain benchmarks, whatever, we will unlock this thing. And they look at this glittering pile of goodies and they think, my God, you know, everybody gets excited about it, whatever, and you turn it around. At the same time, that's the carrot. You have a stick where you say, and if you don't, then we're going to ratchet things up. And you kind of just basically make it 
even starker in, in their alternatives. I think that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing, and I'm, I'm sort of almost even hesitant to even mention this, is that you flip, you flip the sanctions that you've got now, which is, a, I mean, I'm not sure technically if it would be called a sort of reverse sunset clause, where you say, I'll tell you what we'll do. In, you've got this new government, whatever, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt for six months or, say, until the next elections. We're going to drop all the sanctions and whatever, but they'll automatically go back on if you don't meet these benchmarks, the benchmarks that we've all been talking about, the ones that there's pretty wide agreement on in, civil, in civic society. And that way you take away the, the excuse of sanctions and whatever, you just you, you pull it back and you flip it. And that would be a way to, to prioritise the carrot over the stick and see if it mix it up and see if it works. I mean, I, I personally, my personal opinion is that I don't think it would, but sometimes that that can be un, un, unlocked. My, my worry with Zimbabwe is that and in the way that it's changed, in the way this whole, this whole calculation has changed, is that Zimbabweans are, you know, a, a very, very... They have a lot of initiative. They've got, they're, they're able to make a plan when stuff isn't... They've got, they're enormously adaptable. And there's so many of the best Zimbabweans fleeing the country all the time in the diaspora. A lot of the leadership echelon, a lot of people who should be at home doing stuff are going away. And what they do, ironically, is they assist Zimbabwe in surviving because the country exists on their remittances. Zimbabwe is a huge remittance economy. It's like the Philippines or Pakistan or Egypt. And the more people who go out, the more that they actually send money back and they kind of um, uh, and they keep the they keep the government going so I mean those are some of the some of the thoughts I think that one might one might entertain you know even in a I mean Lancaster House they did in a big a peace conference they pulled everybody together and, and said what should we do and that would be one way to look at it thank you very much sir thank you mr. chairman thank you um, let me just have a few more questions if that's okay yes please uh, Mr. Godwin, you had kind of a unique perspective uh, during the 1980s, during the Matabele Land Massacre, and uh, as a, a lawyer at that time. What do you suppose the response uh, will be for those who want to hold people accountable? Uh, what are we likely to hear from the president, who was then the uh, chief of uh, intelligence at that point? Uh, what, what are we likely to hear? I mean, I, I do think, what I'm always astonished by, and I was a young reporter down there on the ground when it happened, it was a first big story of mine, and for me, the Matsby Lamaskas were ZANU-PF's original sin. Uh, when, I, when I saw what that was and what it consisted of, it was something where I, along with so many people, had gone back to Zimbabwe after 1980, and this was going to be this big new progressive experiment, and I never recovered from it, and I don't think the country ever fully recovered from it. I think we lost our moral core, and we lost the whole sort of hopeful, you know, thing that everybody had up until that point. What, I'm con what I am consistently surprised and amazed by is actually how generous of spirit the, the victims and the families of the victims are. What, in my view, and I really don't, I do not, I don't speak for, for these people, these people have their own voices and whatever, but in talking to them, what my takeaway is, is that they're incredibly reasonable, and what they really want is acknowledgement. They want acknowledgement of what, it, what has happened. They want an inquiry. They want, they want this thing to not be swept under the carpet all the time. And for, the, for, for a government, for any government, it's actually a concession you can make 
that doesn't cost you that much. It's, I mean, now that it's actually really quite a long time ago, and they, they've, they've gone a little bit way once, you know, they said moment of madness. Well, there's a slight problem with it being a moment of madness, mm -hmm. which is which it took four years, five years, depending on who you, you know, how you calculate it. So it wasn't a moment of madness. And the other problem is that, that the two of the people who were most intimately involved in the Matabeland massacre are now more senior than ever before. So in a sense, the, the more direct perpetrators, you know, the most direct perpetrators, especially, especially Parents Shiri, who, was the, you know, who, who commanded the troops in the field you know, who were doing this, is now in the cabinet. So, so I, I mean, I, you know, in, in a perfect world, you know, I think that really has to be dealt with, and the country can't move on really in in its sort of the, the culture of impunity we were talking about before. It it really starts with the Matsbilan massacre, and then it goes on through all these other things. Zanu PF has been rewarded every time it's used violence for political ends. It's worked. If you just look at it on a cause and effect basis, it's worked for them, and they haven't had to pay, you know, a price for it. And if that goes on, it becomes completely irrational for them to stop. Why would they stop? It works every time. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Beattie, you talk about uh, um, what was mentioned in your testimony and others that uh, need the diaspora to be able to vote. That's part of the Constitution right now. And there's about four million uh, Zimbabweans living abroad, which would represent a sizable chunk if they were able to, to vote. Uh, how much resistance do you think you'll get from government to uh, make good on uh, constitutional protections there because it would uh, one would assume uh, that uh, uh, a good chunk of those outside of the country uh, might see things differently than the ruling party thank you mr chairman the, the constitution is very clear in section 67 that every citizen is uh, a right to participate in the political affairs of one's own country, and it's got the right to make a political decision, including uh, the right to vote. Uh, this provision in the constitution we, we took from the South African constitution, where there is a judgment, a, 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 a judgment that says the diaspora is a right to vote. So we are insisting that we can't disenfranchise the millions of Zimbabweans that are in the uh, diaspora. In the past, there's been a serious resistance uh, by the government, by the authorities, against the enfranchising people in the diaspora. Uh, the, the major argument uh, and the major understated premise has been that uh, people in the diaspora are deemed to be opposition, but that's neither here nor there. We have to uh, empower and enfranchise Zimbabweans abroad. There's also been excuses uh, around uh, the costs uh, associated with, um, uh, with this exercise. But if you look at the models used by other African countries, including South Africa, including Mozambique, for instance, to, to name two examples, voting centers are simply set up at embassies. So the citizen would have to travel, in the case of the United States of America, one travels to, to Washington, D.C., <laughs> One could travel to, to New York. So logistics cannot be an excuse for denying uh, the right of uh, people uh, to, to, to vote. But what is key in all the benchmarks we have uh, spoken of, all the reforms we, we have spoken of, it's important that they are time-bound. Uh, it's important that they are, are timelined. It's important that these reforms are, are smart 
so that they are meaningful and, 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 and substantive. And it's important that, uh, that the United States engages, that there is, there is incentive and, and, and reward uh, for any effort uh, towards a, 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 a good behavior. But it's also important to speak out against transgressions and, and, and non-compliance. And I restate my point that uh, we are at a critical juncture uh, where important decisions can be made uh, for our country. And indeed, it will be a very sad day if the excitement, the joy, the jubilation, uh, the exhilaration that we saw on the 18th of November uh, 2017 is a hijacked one, is a, is a captured one, is, is, a, is a lost one. We have a duty as Zimbabwean, as Zimbabwean leaders to ensure that uh, we fulfill the expectation uh, that was expressed in the streets on the 18th of November 2007. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Mavinkar, uh, how free is the media now in Zimbabwe? Uh, I should say prior to the coup and then now after what, per, what uh, changes have been promised, if any, uh, what needs to happen with regard to uh, free and independent media? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, when uh, the military takeover occurred on November 15, the day before, on November 14, Human Rights Watch was in Harare to speak out on the abuses around the media, uh, particularly police abuses, uh, the arrest of um, a number of journalists, uh, police harassment, uh, uh, detentions of, of journalists was rife. Since the military takeover, the soldiers have particularly focused on what they call cyber security threats and said that uh, social media now constitutes the highest uh, national security threat to the uh, authorities in Zimbabwe. So there is a, a danger now of um, uh, shrinking space and the soldiers have uh, issued a number of uh, warnings uh, to those that are on social media and there have been uh, increasing uh, attacks um, uh, on social media from those that are uh, supportive of the authorities in, in Zimbabwe. What needs to happen now to uh, open up uh, the space uh, for the media uh, is to ensure that there are critical uh, reforms, a repeal or amendment is appropriate of um, uh, such laws as the Public Order and Security Act, uh, the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, and also to ensure that policing is impartial, is independent, is professional because uh, partisan policing was also part of one of the reasons why there was this targeting uh, of um, uh, members of the media. Uh, one of the uh, activists um, who disappeared, was disappeared in, in March uh, 2015, Itai Zamara, was himself a, a freelance uh, journalist. Uh, recently, also an American citizen, um, Martha O'Donovan, was picked up uh, and locked up uh, and charged with um, uh, seeking to subvert a constitutional government um, simply because of a tweet. So this kind of uh, trajectory has not gone away because the infrastructure in terms of the laws uh, in place remain. So there is an urgent need as we prepare for 2018 elections to look at legislative reforms that would open up uh, the media space and ensure that 
there is a full implementation of the 2013 constitution which guarantees uh, media freedoms but which are not enjoyed by citizens because of the laws that exist that are not in line with the 2013 constitution. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have any further questions, Senator Booker? No, sir. Um, no, sir. Just uh, hoping that we can keep the lines of communications open as things are unfolding, especially into the coming year. Well, thank you. I want to say thanks to all the panelists, uh, again, for re rearranging your schedule and travel times, and uh, it's, it's very much appreciated. And uh, we will certainly uh, call on you again if we, if we can. Uh, in terms of uh, assistance to us as we formulate policy uh, where we can be helpful. And uh, appreciate the interest in this uh, uh, subcommittee. Appreciate the partnership that we have. As uh, Senator Booker said, this is not a, a partisan issue. Uh, our response to uh, Zimbabwe and uh, our hope that we can uh, uh, have a, a brighter, a more democratic future. So thank you. And with the thanks to the committee, this hearing stands adjourned. Oh, I should mention the hearing record will remain open for one week until tomorrow. If you have any responses to give from members, if you could do so promptly, we'd appreciate it. Thank you.